there are some people who like to invest with operators where they only pick off deals if they're home runs. How do you look at that? I guess like answer that question for potential investors that are looking to invest with you. This philosophy, like I am not a big fee guy. I have the lending business, which makes plenty of money. Like if I don't do a deal for two years, it's totally okay. If I do five, that's fine too. Uh, I'm not after the fees. I'm after like doing good deals that make big profit. And I think investors should de-risk by moving their money in and out of deals quickly. And that's the philosophy I live with and operate with. And I think, I think is a valuable philosophy to investors. Welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited investors build their legacy through passive investments. I'm your host, Pascal Wagner, and today we have on the show David Lover joining us from Austin, Texas. Welcome, David. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a little bit of a, a background on David. He is the CEO of Turnkey Ventures, uh, an Austin, Texas-based real estate company with expertise in acquisitions development and also private equity. Uh, their strategy is two-pronged. Uh, the first is, is that they buy and flip new construction fa factory-made uh, residential properties. And the second approach is that they purchase a long-term hold uh, retail centers. And since founding in December 2014, Turnkey Ventures has... Uh, over 60 million in assets under management, over 16 different deals with a historical IRR of 34%. Uh, so I'm excited to dive into this. Uh, I also know David through uh, a men's mastermind group called GoBundance, which you might've heard me reference here a couple of times, uh, but um, that's how I've originally gotten to know David over a personal level. And uh, we've also interacted on a, on a couple different deals um, for my own co-living portfolio. So. Uh, I'm excited to dive in here. So David, to start, kind of help me understand. So I kind of gave a background on what you do. How did you get into that? And how has that changed over since 2014? Yeah, I'll, I'll get to that. But before I do, first of all, so glad to be on your show. And you know, for the audience, I, I met Pascal years ago, but we I got to watch his journey of deploying his investments into the short-term co-living strategy, got to see how thoughtful, you know, you work through all the different thinking and all the different deals. And when you said you were coming out with this platform and kind of showing LPs how to invest and, and how to pick good operators, and uh, I, I just totally blew me away. I think it's one of the best things out there. There's just so many people who don't know what they're doing and to have this type of platform where people can learn and invest well is, is one of the best things going right now. Cool. Thanks, David. I, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, but to give you a backstory, my background's in mortgage lending. So in 2005, I got into lending. So for about 10 years, I was mastering my craft and building that company. Uh, once that company got big enough to where, you know, I, I wouldn't call it mature, like, but I had a big enough team. It was 50 employees at that point where I could kind of divert my attention a little bit. And, you know, I'm a big fan of investing in what you know. And I was around real estate deals all day, doing loans for real estate deals all day. So I got to see kind of what were good deals and what weren't. So uh, thinking that I started with flipping single family homes in Silicon Valley as a passive investment strategy. And that's where it all started. And, and I think we all know that it's not exactly passive if, if you're flipping them as was that was that a big learning or takeaway there? Yeah. You're still doing a lot of passive stuff <laughs> yeah, today. Big air quotes, passive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, okay, so you you've had this experience, and you still do today. You you get to see the market from that lending perspective. What? How does that? Does that help you as an an advantage in any way? Are you maybe seeing a lot more deals than maybe a traditional investor would, or are you are you understanding how people are getting deals under contract? Like what what are maybe like advantages that you have that someone else that's not a lender? Yeah. You- the lending background is a huge advantage, uh, massive, massive advantage. There's, I think there's, besides just the lending, I think oftentimes people have this dream of like getting out of their nine to five and becoming an investor. Uh, I think for starters, you have to have some type of income or some type of capital to invest. So to have some kind of day job, whether it's lending or something else that brings in enough money so that you have money to invest. I think that's a, a step that a lot of people overlook. Um, and it's especially nice because that's a commission only sales business and you can own the business. So, you know, my, my good salespeople make 500 grand, a million bucks a year. You know, when you're making that much money, you have lots of money to place. And, and if a deal goes bad, it's not the end of the world because you have more money coming in. So you can go get the next one. So I think, you know, for any, uh, you know, investors out there, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. But from lending, I mean, I can remember in 2008, I was watching these deals go under contract, these short sales where it was like used to be a million dollar property and someone was tying it up for 300 grand. And yeah, they had to wait a year for the bank. And us, us as a salesperson would have to wait a year to close to get our commission. But you'd just be looking at the price they'd lock it up at. You're like, Oh my God, those are just the cheapest deals out there. Uh, so like when you have dozens of customers a month and you're kind of seeing the spread of the market and looking at appraisals, it, it gives you a clear vantage point. Like I knew at that moment, I was like, I was still pretty young, but I was like, man, like if I had money, I would buy everything right now. Like it was just so clear in eight, nine and 10, like that was the right move. Yeah. And, and somehow then you switched from, from, you know, flipping homes in San Francisco to to now getting into what uh, you do with retail centers and, and manufactured homes. How did that transition happen? It may not sound obvious, but it's actually a pretty obvious transition. So I was working 60, 70 hours a week in the loan business, and that business led to a lot of my deals. You know, we had these relationships with realtors. So all me and my sales team were meeting with realtors. We're getting 70 off market single family homes a month referred and only buying, say, one. So all our deals were super big margin. But by the time it was said and done, we had 50 million in flip deals going at one time. And I literally had instruction manager, assistant, two accountants, a marketing person. And I was like, oh my God, I'm running a second business. So it did get to the point where the, you know that was obviously making its own set of money and actually eventually passed the loan business. But I wasn't trying to run a second business. I was trying to passively invest. So this is dating back to say 2015, 2016. I started, I bought 14 houses in Nashville for Airbnb. I bought uh, 130 apartment doors anywhere from Alabama, uh, Huntsville, which is the hot ticket now, to stuff in the Bay, to Oakland, San Francisco. And I bought a retail center. So I really like spread out among asset classes to try and, you know, diversify and learn different things. Um, what, what I've learned is there's no perfect asset class. I mean, the reality is, you know, if it's really safe and really reliable, it probably gives a low return. Uh, if it's, high risk and high work, it probably gives a high return and every investment is on the spectrum somewhere in between. And you, you just got to pick your threshold of what you want in terms of work, risk and return and, and kind of land where you want to land. And I, I've landed at uh, the retail centers because you sign a 10-year lease with a tenant and 
you know, it's kind of set it and forget it. So it's a lot of work to get the tenant, but once you do, it's high return and not a lot of headache. Uh, and these modular flips here in Austin, I mean, it's just the returns are crazy and it is a lot of work, but I, I'm enjoying it and I'm having fun and I like the high returns. So, you know, that's where it is. Okay. So, so tell us a little bit more about the structure of, of these two. Are they two different syndications? Is it one fund and like an investor comes in and, and they get access to, to you doing both? Or when someone invests with you, what are they investing in? So the commercial deals we do, each one is an isolated deal with its own investor stack. So it's a classic syndication deal. Uh, on average, we're buying it for about $3 million. We're building it for about $2 million and it's worth about $8.5 million. The key with these, the retail centers, why I like them, is that it's really fast money in and money out. And I'll zoom out a little bit. Uh, whenever I've had problems on deals, like I've done new construction deals in San Francisco where you get held up with the city for two or three years, it just crushes your returns, both because you have interest carry, but also like as an investor, the IRRs are based on like, you know, timelines. So if, to make the same return, it takes you five years instead of one. It just crushes the numbers. So, uh, you know, like my investing thesis now is like, it's got to be fast money in, money out. I would say us versus other syndications is every deal we're doing. We're targeting capital back to investors in six to 12 months. Um, and so, you know, it's, we're, we're meant to be a little bit higher pref, uh, lower amount of the equity, but capital returned very quickly. And so, so, so as an LP investor, I'd maybe say, Hey, um, I, uh, this is primary, primarily an equity growth style play where I'm giving you money. Uh, you know, high velocity of money. I, I get my money back within six, twelve, maybe eighteen months. I can redeploy that, and then I still have money in your deal, or or that's when the 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 investment ends, and it's just a you know six to eighteen month um, investment hold period. Yeah, so I'll answer that question. So for the the retail centers, the money stays in. So like, let's say we buy it for three, build it for two, and it's worth eight million. We would refinance five right at a year, which we've now done three times successfully. And your capital wouldn't come back, but your piece of the equity would stay in. But your capital comes back plus 12% pref. So it's it's a really high pref. It's really fast money back, but the equity is is a bit smaller. So it, you do hold a long-term position, but it would be smaller than compared to, say, other syndication deals. On the modular construction deals, it's money in, money out. And we do it in closed end funds. So we'll do a block of like 10 homes. We close the fund to say it's, hey, these 10 properties. And then when they all sell in a year, you get your capital back plus return. And so um, we did the first couple as just individual houses with one investor. And then once we kind of got the hang of the model, we've now turned it into, uh, you know, 10 pack closed end funds. We are exploring the idea of an open fund that's, you know, kind of a five year deal, but uh, you know, it's starting to get away from my principles of just money in, money out, keeping the investors' money moving back to them quickly. Yeah. So, why why have you chosen? Why not just refund uh, and pull the uh, the investor out of the deal completely? And like, are you are you planning on selling these assets within ten years, or is it kind of like an indefinite hold? The investor just gets to participate. Uh, in the upside over time, whenever you decide to sell, I, I had a, recently on Monday of this week, I had ten of my investors fly in, and we uh, did a nice dinner, and then we went out to tour one of the house. We toured several of the houses in the closed end fund for the modulars, 
And then we got to watch the house being flown in. And in literally an afternoon, we went from an empty lot to a $1.5 million house landed. Uh, and by the way, it lands finished, kitchens in, you know, everything in. It's, it's really incredible. It's super fun. Everyone's got their phones out, Instagram, like cool experience. And I, I found myself just filled with joy hanging out with these people. Like these investors become like my best friends, my family. Like we win together. We, they all have ideas and contribute. And like they think of something like, Oh, you should check this out or whatever. It, it's, it's so cool. And I, I, I do it because. I, I love that feeling and I like winning together. So I'm not like really in this space of like, oh, I just want to buy them out real quick and hold the asset. Like I actually, I want to keep them in and then we get in the next one and we're in that one. And it's, I think it's very cool to like be in multiple deals with people over a long term, but I like returning capital quickly. How do you, how do you, I mean, we're talking about two very different asset classes. How, how did you get ex- experience in like how did you, you know at one point you're you're flipping homes and so you know you're, maybe you're involved in the renovation and then somehow you get involved in this manufacturing ability what's this of manufacturing homes for these sing, single family lots like tell me about that transition and how that happened yeah it goes back to that in 2016 say i was like hey how do i turn this to more passive uh which by the way i've learned that's not what i want but uh, to answer your question more directly um I bought, imagine this, I'm in Silicon Valley, California, and I buy 14 Airbnb homes in Nashville. And we were crushing it. Like, and this is, by the way, you know, everyone's freaked out about Airbnb now. This is 2016. No one was talking about Airbnb. And Nashville had a giant hotel shortage. And it's the town of bachelor bachelorette parties where Airbnbs compete well against hotel. I mean, we were buying 350 grand houses, doing seven grand a month per house on rents. It was just printing cash. Such a good deal. But it was not passive. It was so much work. We had a 25% of revenue manager and we were on calls twice a week with the manager problems, cleaner miss. Like it was a nonstop work. We were flying out all the time. And I love that portfolio. I would have kept it, but, uh, Nashville changed their permitting rules and essentially said, Hey, if you, you're grandfathered in, if you have it, if you don't, you can't get future ones. Uh, and then an attorney, like kind of a, asset protection attorney looked over my portfolio and noticed that I had 14 homes in my personal name with Airbnb guests staying in. And so he gave me the legal advice, which was, hey, you know, you should put these in an LLC. And so I thought the name Nash B&B was really clever. So I created that LLC and moved them all into it, only to realize that that was technically a change of title and killed all my permits. Wow. Yeah. As well. And to be frank, I kept operating them. Uh, because yeah. they were like sending me fines and the fines were like 150 bucks a month. I'm like, okay, yeah, here you go. <laughs> and then eventually they called me out and I had to like fly to Nashville and chat with the city. And I was like, you know, uh, that's like too much. If it was just some fines, it would have been fine. But it was a good learning experience. I, I mean, how is some attorney from Nevada supposed to know like the local nuances of Nashville, you know, air short-term rental rules when no one really knew what short-term rentals were. Um, so, you know, I think, if there's any takeaways, it's like double check your attorney, but also like, uh, you know, when I look at like, I, I get approached often now about doing Airbnb deals and I know there's like increased revenue and it, it looks pretty, but it's so much work. So like, you know, in the scale of like, what's the return? What's the work? What's the risk? Do I want to do this? You know, it's often the answer for me is no, but it could be yes for somebody else. You know what I mean? Uh, but so I systematically went through each asset class and came up with 
some, some analysis like that as to why it didn't work. And then when I landed on the retail center where I signed a credit union and I signed a 10-year deal and I don't get any phone calls and the check shows up on the first every month, I was like, I kind of like this. And I, I know I'm in a risk bucket that if the credit union died, it, I'd probably be hard to get a new tenant. But right for this seven or eight years, I've been getting those checks. It is beautiful. Yeah. And, and how are you... So how are you going about getting these tenants? Like someone who's an LP investor, I might think, okay, um, you know, single family, I understand. You know, it's a, it's, it's, you, you have a lot, you're putting a manufactured house on top of it, you're instantly improving, improving the value. And so that makes sense. Retail, uh, you know, seems so much different to me, right? You have to, maybe you're trying to find a Best Buy or a, or Chipotle, and you're trying to get them into your space. Like, how do you, how do you first, I imagine you find this property, maybe it's empty, or maybe it has an existing tenant that has a lease that's about to expire. And then, you know, you coming in maybe without prior retail center experience, like, how do you go about finding those tenants? Yeah, the, the retail center, the first one was kind of by accident. This broker had brought me a deal and said, Hey, listen, this building's half vacant. There's a golden one in there. They're not, they haven't extended yet. So no bank will lend on it. So if you'll come in and buy this, I'll extend their lease and then I'll find you the other tenants. Uh, and, and I got a killer deal on it. I think I bought it for three, put a million in, getting all the other tenants in and it appraised at 6.3. We refinanced 4.2. So paid back all the money that went into it, got like a 4% loan. And now the thing cash flows and it's, you know, five, 10 grand a month. Since then, so easy peasy, right? Uh, but the uh, that was kind of dumb luck, but that was the big catalyst, which is like, okay, it's really hard to get the tenants, but once you do, it's a good asset class. So I, instead of like trying to buy a building and cross my fingers that I would be able to get the tenant, I kind of went the other route, which is like, okay, how do I find the tenant first? And I started thinking through like, and also, what tenant can I find that is going to pay rent? That's the whole thing is. Does the tenant stay in business and does it pay rent? So you're really, that's kind of what led me into the private equity world is like, now I'm really like in retail centers, I'm really underwriting the tenant. So I got to know, is this tenant going to pay rent? Is the business model sound? Is it safe? And if so, uh, now I'm kind of going backwards and saying, hey, how much do you need to build out? What can you afford in rent? And doing the math on how do I find a building that sort of works for this particular tenant to come in and work there? Um and my value add as the business owner with them is I'm kind of building out their space and handing them the keys to an open store. Uh, for them, it's usually hard to raise that money and it's hard to find the real estate and it's hard for them to manage the construction. So all the things that say a restaurant owner might not want to do, I do. So I'm like, Hey, you just cook the food. I'll build you a beautiful restaurant. You know, like that's kind of the deal, right? Yeah. But so are you like leaning on brokers to figure out who these potential tenants are or? Is there like a website where you just go down the list of the top 100 tenants that, you know, exist in, in a geography? Yeah. I mean, this isn't certain elements of my business are very systematic. This one has kind of been just shooting from the hip. I just knew after doing the Sacramento deal with the golden one that I was like, man, this is a good concept. If I see the right tenant, I'm going to do it. I happened to walk into a crunch fitness in uh, a brand new open in Pacific Beach and it was nine bucks a month best gym in town at the time. And it's like, there's no way this business makes money. So I tracked down the owner and I sat down with him for lunch and just kind of like eyes wide open. Just I asked him a million questions. How many members? What do you charge them? What's the average amount that you make? 
how do you even make money? Like, what's your rent? Like, I, and for whatever reason, he was cool and open. And we got to the end of that conversation. It was just light bulb, like uh, value gym. It's like exactly what I'm looking for. And that, that started down the path of doing the retail centers for the crunches. Wow. Okay. And, and how many of those deals are you now turning out on? Like, is it hard to find deals right now, now given where the economy is? Or is it still similar? You know, it's just a matter of going through 100 deals and you, you pick the best one and, and keep going. I'm not in some huge rush to do 10 retail centers. If on average, you buy it for three, build it for two, and it's worth eight, it's an $8 million deal. If I do one a year, each one cash flow is about 20 grand. Like, you know, why do I need to do five? Not that I don't want to work. It's just like, I'd rather do one and do it amazingly well and make sure it lands well. I'm also like really eyes wide open to new business partners to go in the business. Like after having the factory model be so successful on the residential side, I'm like, shoot, I should probably own the factory. Then I, you know, <laughs> I met the factory owners and now I've dug in a multiple factory, uh, uh, P&Ls and I've like learned that business and I really love it. And like right now I'm very close on a deal to buy a factory, build it out, hand it to the factory and let them run the business and pay me some rent. Uh, that would make me quite happy. And then I'd own part of a factory that, you know, uh, I'm buying houses from. So I, I love that business and it's, it's a good real estate play, but I'm, I'm looking at a basketball concept. I'm, I've looked at multiple restaurant concepts. I've looked at, you know, anytime a, a business, I walk into a business and I'm like, Oh, this is a really cool business. Uh, I'm paying attention. One of the things, uh, uh, how big, uh, one of the, how big is your team when it comes to doing this? I mean, I'm imagining, you know, this. You've mentioned this concept of, hey, I only need to do one a year and I'd be fine. Um, there's this interesting dichotomy when you're looking at investors to invest, uh, partners to invest in, and there are some where. It's a full-fledging business with a big team. And uh, you know, on the one side, you could say, hey, I only want to you know, work with you know, operators that have a full team that are, that are constantly looking at deals because you know, it's their bread and butter. That's how they operate. They, they need to do deals to survive. And on the other hand, you also have this, like, there are some people who like to invest with operators where they only pick off deals if they're home runs, like in the instance that you're talking about. Um, how do you how do you look at that, and how do you, I guess, like answer that question for potential investors that are looking to invest with you? Probably going to go a long answer on this because I have strong opinions about it. Yeah, let's do it. I'm on everybody's list that I can be on. If you'll put me on your syndication list, I'll read it. If I really liked it, I might invest in it. I look at so much stuff and. Most of the deals that I see are just not very good, especially in 2021, 20, 22. I, I was seeing these apartment syndication deals that were just garbage. Like they were like planning for a four cap on the way out in a tertiary market where generally the returns is six cap. And, you know, to not use acronyms, basically they were assuming the rates would stay low forever and the values would be at these crazy numbers. And it was like, I was so clear that they weren't like, obviously the Fed printed 10 trillion, obviously rates weren't brought down and obviously values were inflated and obviously it was going to go back to normal. So like for people getting into a five-year syndication that's value add and they're calling for five years from now for those rates not to adjust, I'm just like staring at this thing, like white knuckled, like, oh my God, you're going to lose all this LP money, like for sure. 
And, and like, it didn't take a rocket scientist to understand these very basic things, which goes back to your point earlier about how does the lending affect you? I, I just, because I've been in lending so long, I like know how the rates work. They don't stay at 3% forever. Like, this is not how it works. So like, right. It was the first time. Yeah. So like, you know, uh, so to answer your question about the volume, you know, I think it's hard, man. If you got like, I'm not going to say any specific names, but I can think of some funds where they've got, you know, a 20 person team they're working off of fees. And man, like a lot of the stuff they do is really polished and professional and good reporting. And, and that, that part is good. But like, if you think about these fund managers that need the fees to keep their lights on, isn't that like a competing interest to the LP? It's such a problem. It's such a problem. Like, cause now they're going to do a deal to get the fees regardless of the five year outcome. And it's really hard five years from now to like hold them accountable. And if they're doing five new deals a year, you know, even if you get to that into that vintage that kind of sucked, like by then they've built this new investor bay and you, you know what I mean? Like you're kind of hosed. And so these, these long horizons with venture funds that are 10 year vintages and, you know, five year apartment syndications that are five year vintages. I, I don't think 15 or 18 IRR projected, which could be wrong, is enough return to take on that type of risk. I actually think it's stupid. Um, so I'm, I'm, this is part of this philosophy. Like I am not a big fee guy. I, I have the lending business, which makes plenty of money. Like I, I, if I don't do a deal for two years, it's totally okay. If I do five, that's fine too. Uh, I'm not after the fees. I'm after like doing good deals that make big profit. And I think investors should de risk by moving their money in and out of deals quickly. And that's the philosophy I live with and operate with. And I think. I think is a valuable philosophy to investors other than if somebody's long-term and they're like, I just want to put some money in and set it, forget it. Like, sure. Maybe a longer vintage fund is fine, but man, it's so hard. You really got to do your DD and understand macroeconomics where things are going. And it's just not that simple. So how, how would you, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm trying to figure out how would I understand when a sponsor maybe subconsciously or you know it are is doing deals for fees instead of upside i mean you know i'm imagining everyone's doing it for some sort of upside and they're there everyone has optimistic eyes uh as the gp you want to be doing deals as the as the person investing you want the deals to go well uh but but how, how are there flags that i can look for are there you know Yes, uh, this is a tricky reply. So usually if somebody doesn't have a team or is pretty scrappy, that's usually a good sign. But higher risk. Yeah, because so does also the person who's not credible and has never done a deal and they're trying to pitch you on their first deal that they're probably going to screw up in a lot of ways. They don't have a team either. But also like uh, we, we know a guy who now has gone up. I think he's got a billion under management. I mean, he's crushing, but I, I've known him for a decade. And, and for the first five, seven years I knew him, I mean, he had done dozens of deals that all went really well. And it was always just him and maybe a VA. Like he did everything himself. And it wasn't until the fund was like really sizable that like he started hiring team members. Like, and when he was doing it himself, he didn't have any like push to like get all these fees. Right. So I, I think. Maybe to pull that back a little bit. Uh, 
And it's hard because can you expect an LP to ask these questions? But I would ask things like how much assets under management? What are your fees? What does your team look like? And I'd be thinking about like, what are the fees they're making? What's their overhead with that much team? Like how many deals do they need to buy to like make this work? Like I, I, I ask these questions because like, I need to know if someone's bloated or if they're just like kind of patient. And it's apparent to me because I know the business, but if I was an LP, like, how would you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about how I invest and, and right now I think of, you know, in terms of wealth preservation, uh, I don't want to cut my teeth with any new manager. Um, I only want to work with people who, uh, you know, have gone through multiple, at least one financial crisis cycle. Uh, someone ideally that has audited financials and and that's bigger. And those those companies usually have fees. Um, and you know, in terms of my perspective, I understand I understand why those fees exist. Uh, and I understand that there needs to be a team to run it. And so, I guess the the thought here is is if you're more conservative than than going for a larger fund with that that has fees makes more sense but if you're really trying to juice returns then you go with a an earlier manager like how how do you think about that it's all back to the thing i said earlier there's three inputs it's how much work how much risk and how much return so let's take a big boy there's some of these big real estate funds you can put your money in and it'll give you maybe a 10% return. And if there's a manager, maybe a net out of nine or something like that. I, I would say they do have fees. Their fees are worth it. They have a proven business model. So I would call the risk low. I'd call that return okay-ish. Uh, and I'd say the amount of work low. So that that might be a decent deal for somebody who wants to be really passive and just make a nice return. Although I will say, you know, you got T-bills at 5%. like. You know, you start talking seven, eight percent. It's you know, is the juice really worth the squeeze? Because even the big boys can die. Um, so you know, I think it's fine, like that type of return. But like, and also, I think there's different buckets, right? Like maybe fifty percent of somebody's capital goes into something safe. Maybe ten or twenty percent is allocated towards more higher risk, higher return type of deals. Uh, and so, you know, m- maybe that's the deal, or there's some allocation there, right? Um, and also how much net worth does somebody have? If somebody has a billion dollars, they're fine making a 5% yield, you you know? So it's, it's different things, but like, I think there's these good middle of the pack. Am I, am I allowed to say another operator? That's not fine. (laughs) Go for it. Uh, He's a mutual friend of ours, uh, Andrew Cushman. He's a great operator. He's a 15 to 20 IRR kind of guy as trustworthy as could be operates incredibly well, has a ton under management. I think that's a nice middle ground where you're getting a pretty good return. You've got a super credible operator. His team's not bloated. Like he just runs a good business. And I think that's like the kind of target if somebody wants to be in say apartments. Are you, uh, I mean, are you looking at the team and, and figuring out like, okay, this, this group has, you know, 20 employees, they need to at least make X million a year. If they need to, you know, they have at least a million in expenses a year because of salaries. And so you're maybe like looking into, okay, I see that their numbers are high and I'm running, I'm running. That means they're grabbing that deals. And I'll bet you, I, I could like 
before they even show me the term sheet, I bet you it'll be heavy fee, but then heavy spread to the equity investor. Like maybe it's 80 to the uh, LP and 20 to the GP or something like that. But it'll be heavy fee up front. Like that's, that's exactly how that fund will be structured. Because like, it's a bad deal. <laughs> you know I mean? Like, it's so obvious, right? Uh, you know, I don't know. Like, when, you th- when you think of, uh, when you think of splits, uh, how do you look at splits? Is it, um, you know, if there's an 80, tw- you know, when I, sometimes when I see 50-50 splits on some of these uh, deals, I think, wow, um, unless they're, you know, 20 years in and they're insanely uh, experienced, then I would say that that kind of feels egregious. But now you're kind of adding this perspective of, oh, wow, if they're heavy fees and then they have splits that are maybe more favorable to the investor that, oh, maybe there's a flag here. Um, do, does the GP not believe in the deal as much or are they just trying to be more investor friendly? I think higher pref, lower split equals GPs putting their risk on the table, which means they know it's a good deal. If it's a skinny deal, they'll go higher back into the investor, higher upfront fees. Uh, because if it's a bad deal, eh, you got your fees. <laughs> You're only going to clear the 6% pref hurdle. So it's like, okay, let's move out of here. So, you know, uh, I'm not saying every time this is a bad deal, you you could just have somebody who's been doing it away for many years and they're excellent and that's how they do their splits and they actually could charge more. They just don't. And there's this high integrity, like beacon of an operator. You know, I can't name a lot off the top of my head though. Okay. Helpful. I mean, it's just, just an interesting way to, and another perspective of looking at operators and, and the types of deals that they put out. Going back to the, the topic of maybe manufactured homes, where, where do you see that market going? Why is that such a, a hot spot for you right now? And and do you see that continuing? Yeah. So I think to dispel the conversation, because some people hear manufactured or modular and they think of like trailers or, you know, double wides for, you know, out in the country or whatever that is. To be clear, the construction we're talking about is just factory built systems where big pieces of the construction are done in a factory and then it's assembled on site. We're building multi-million dollar mansions in Austin, you know, $100,000 kitchen packages. I mean, these are beautiful mansions. The, uh, the stuff, though, that we're talking about, it just can't be customized. You make one design, you get it approved with the state, and then the factory builds the same mansion over and over. So you can't do it every time, like just a custom deal. So the factory built is just you pick a design and you repeat it. But the quality can range from trailer, if that's what you want, all the way to, you know, $5 million mansion. So just just to clarify, like what that is, um, future of construction. We're one of the few countries on the major countries on the planet that still builds on site. Um, if you ever go to a factory and see it, it's incredible. Like imagine thirty five stations. There's a crane that's holding the box, and this box is just moving down the line, and it's like station one framing, boom. Two hours later, station two electrical, boom. Station three plumbing. You know, just down the line, I mean, they could put out a 2,500 foot house in 10 days. Like you've never seen anything like it. And and there's an inspector and a checklist and a hard hat. And like, you know, it's like, it's like a real production. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'll say this, I've never seen a beer can in the factory. Um, so 
Now, when I drive by stick built sites and I see the wood out and there's rain and the quality of the woods getting, you know, destroyed and just like it's sitting there for a year, like, uh, I think the factory is a more efficient way to produce homes, but it's so hard to set one up. You need 120 employees. It's multi-million dollars of CapEx. It's not just some contractor that gets a license and brings a couple guys together and builds it. So, you know, I know there's uh, some large building companies that have started to produce out of the factory that, you know, the 20,000 home built to rent people. I think there's some people that see the light, but, you know, I think right now it's something like 2% of all building is factory built. So like, it's a very small part of the market. Uh, anyone in the industry will tell you it's the future of building and that's what will happen. But, you know, who knows if it is, you know, but for right now, for us, the reason that we do it is, uh, I can buy a lot, have a state approved permit in a month and I can have the house down in three months, like all day, every day. So when you compare that to a two year investment cycle of trying to buy, get fresh permits approved and then uh, try and sell it two years later, like not only is there risk of the carry plus all the risk of market change, like the, the three month horizon and money in, money out. I mean, they, if you can't tell from what I'm saying, that's like my whole investment thesis. And so to have a construction model where I can buy a lot, throw a house down, have big margin, sell it, make cash and move on to the next one. That's that's where I live. Yeah. And then ideally, uh, you know, is is holding the equity in the deal only for your retail centers or is that also in the in the single family manufactured home? We, we do profit splits on the flips. So we go 12 pref to the money that came in and then we split 20% of the profit. Uh, our fund one, we're, we're not totally done with it. Uh, I, I'd expect to be done by the end of the year. We assumed 15% under this year's comps for ARVs, which seems to be safe at this point. Residential seems to be fine. So, 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 so break those out into oh, the fifth grade language. Yes. If we, our target homes worth, say, 2 million, when we're doing our estimates, we'd go minus 15%. So we'd say 1.7 million is our guess for value. So we, we underestimated quite a bit. And residential housing, I think most people around the nation would understand it's actually seems to be pretty strong right now because the inventory is so low. So that seems like a safe assumption. Assuming we hit those assumptions, we'll do 30% return to the investors annualized. Our IRR will be 50% plus on fund one. So, you know, it's the margins are just massive on, on that plan. Is, the, is this just something that's, you know, you found this niche, this sweet spot that's happening right now. It'll only exist for another couple of years. Uh, or how do you see that space evolving in the opportunity that you're playing? in? I think Texas is pretty keen on the factory built and supporting it. They've got a, the approvals done at the state level. The local jurisdictions acknowledge the state approvals, so they, they make it pretty easy. So I think in Texas, there's probably a long runway for this type of investment. Uh, like California, do I see that happening? No, absolutely not. Like the... You know, the state passes a rule to try and create density in every local jurisdiction's fighting it. You know, I, like I, I just, I'm not seeing this be super successful in California. So I, I think that's regional and, and whatever. But for right now, uh, the other thing is there's a lot of California influence coming into Texas and specifically Austin. So who knows, maybe I turn around tomorrow and they outlaw this quick permit and it's no longer a thing. And if, if that happens, I'll pivot to the next model. I mean, if, I'm certain you can tell that I'm open to trying different things and seeing what works and what doesn't, you know? Yeah. But go back to your investment thesis like that. That's a very, you know, you talk a lot 
I, I consider what you're talking about, the velocity of money. Like how quickly do you get your money back so that you can redeploy it? What, why are you so focused uh, on that aspect? And, and how, how is that? Like, did you always have that? How has that changed over time? What, what made you come to that? It's a little bit of scar tissue from building in San Francisco and getting smacked on a couple of projects where we spent three years trying to get permits, you know, this kind of stuff. And, and then you get to the end and you, even on ones that make money, you're like, we didn't really make good money and it was over five years. So the deal just ultimately stinks. Uh, so I think that's some big scar tissue, but also like, uh, it also maybe the lending background. Like I do like the concept of debt. Like you go in, you put your money in. Once you're done, you refi your money back. I actually had a dinner with Robert Kiyosaki a few years ago and, uh, I, I got lucky enough to sit next to him and he talked for most of the dinner and I did a lot of listening, but you know, obviously a great mentor and you know, to anyone in real estate because of his writings. Um, but. One of the major things he says said to me that I'll never forget is he's like, people don't get it. He's like, all I do is acquire assets for free that cash flow. And I'm like, that's right. Someone's just going to give you stuff. And then you take a loan to like, you know, get the money back. And then you get some cash monthly. Like, this feels like a pretty smart move. And obviously, this is the backbone of, say, the Burr method or what we're doing with the retail centers or whatever. But yeah, any, any vertical where I can go get money in money out quickly the bank puts it up and i'm getting cash flow like uh, i'm all over that and it seems to be the way of people who own a lot of things and stuff yeah i dig that um this was awesome david thank you so much for uh for hopping on today where can uh what what are your minimums to to be a part of your fund and, and where can people go learn more to potentially join you uh generally it's a hundred thousand uh, dollars most people message me on instagram if you can believe it or not uh, my handle's at Mr. Lover, M-R-L-A-W-V is in Victor E-R. Um, I recorded on a podcast recently and I think I got 200 DMs after it. So I answered every single DM and I answer it myself and I like it. And, you know, always happy to chat with investors. Awesome. Uh, thanks again for joining us, David. And um, looking forward to seeing you next time.